This is the You Can Learn Chinese podcast. For everyone who's trying to learn Chinese or reaching for the next level, you came to the right place. I'm your host, Jared Turner, longtime resident of China, co-founder of the Mandarin Companion Graded Reader Series, and I'm telling you, childproof your house as much as you want, they're still going to get in. My co-host is John Passon, co-founder of Mandarin Companion, founder of All Set Learning, the Chinese Grammar Wiki, Sinosplice.com, and don't bother doing a criminal background check on him, he's never been caught. This is the first of a four-part series about learning how to read Chinese. In this episode, we're going to start at the beginning and talk about how to learn pinyin, characters, and vocabulary. But don't worry, you'll still get a rant and a rave, or possibly a rant rave. Guest interview is with Scott Young, author of best-selling novel, Ultra Learning, and spent a year without English just to learn new languages, including Chinese. All this and more, let's get to it. Hey guys, this is Jared Turner coming at you from Utah in the United States. And I am John Pazden. I'm in Shanghai, China. Oh, and I've got to mention that we have a new podcast cover. And it's got an illustration of John and I on there. We're looking all handsome, hopefully. Send us any feedback you have about it. All right, before we kick into our episode today, this is a beginning of a four-part series. Just wanted to ask, if you like our podcast, drop us a review. It's kind of funny, but the main repository for reviews is on iTunes. So if you want to log in there and drop us a review, preferably five-star, and let us know what you think. If you hate it, just you know, give us one star or something. No, don't do that. Yeah, so remember, your reviews can be sort of a vote for what you like to hear about on the podcast. And we're also happy to field your questions, hopefully the slightly simpler ones that we can do in the beginning of the podcast. But any kinds of questions are welcome. It could even turn into a full podcast answer. Who knows? So today we are starting a four-part series on how to learn to read Chinese. And today is that first part. Right. So the idea is to take you from the very beginning when you're just starting out all the way through when you're reading comfortably at like an adult level. That's kind of a long journey. You probably aren't going to be able to keep up with the four parts in the podcast, but if you're listening to this podcast, you're probably somewhere along the road in that journey. And today, we're covering pinyin characters and vocabulary. This is part one. And even if you're not a total beginner, I think there will be some useful reminders because, man, a lot of people, they don't start out in the best way and they have to go back and kind of fill in those gaps. So let's just assume for a second here, John, that, okay, so you've decided you want to learn Chinese. Where do I start? Okay, so it should come as no surprise that pinyin is the, the place to begin. But um, here's the thing about pinyin. Most people don't learn it very well. They don't learn it well enough. They kind of learn it just well enough to like sort of recognize a word when they see it, like a word they know, but not really well. You know, hey, John, for a second, I think it's even worth it to talk about. Say, hey, you know, what is pinyin? It even took me a little while to get the concept. What, what is this pinyin thing all about? So traditionally, Chinese was written entirely in characters. And it wasn't until around 1950 that the communists were like, hey, maybe we can help people read better through other means. So they created pinyin, which spells the sounds of the language. It's kind of a, a phonetic way to read Chinese to help people learn characters. But here's the thing. It was not created for foreigners. It was created for Chinese themselves. So that's one reason why pinyin can sometimes be a little confusing. But each character in Chinese is a syllable, 
and each syllable has a pinyin spelling. And if you learn all these pinyin syllables, then you learn all the sounds of the language. And side note, Taiwan uses a slightly different thing. Well, we might, I don't know, we're really going to touch on that too much, but they use it's different kind of spelling of their pinyin. It's called juing. Right. But Taiwan, a lot of people are using pinyin more and more. Just easier if everyone's doing the same thing. Anyway, you need to learn pinyin if you're learning Chinese and you need to learn it well. So what does that mean? Okay, so this is point number two. One thing that I think a lot of people don't do if they don't learn pinyin really well is they don't learn what sounds don't exist in Mandarin. Mm. And the reason this is important is because when you're listening to someone talk and you don't know a lot of Chinese and you're trying to figure out what you're hearing, if you're hearing something but you realize that's not even a sound that exists in Mandarin, then you can be sure that you're hearing it wrong and you can kind of try to figure out what am I actually hearing. Let me give an example of that. So, for example, if I hear someone saying something that sounds like J-A... Ja, but there is no J-A. So I can check my pinyin chart and I see a gap. There's no J-A sound. So it either has to be Z-H-A, which sounds kind of like J-A to my beginner ear, or J-I-A, right? So then you can listen again. Okay, which one of those is it? It's got to be one of them. So if you do this for like all the different sounds, especially the ones that sound similar, it really helps with your listening. You add in a little bit of logic it really helps for those of us that feel like we don't have a great ear, especially in the beginning. I know I was in that category. Now, John, you mentioned something I think it's important for people to know about. You mentioned a pinyin chart. Bring this up. Okay, so pinyin chart has the initials, which are usually you know consonants, the beginning of a syllable, down the left side. And then the vowels and the endings, we call them the finals, across the top. So you combine the first part of the syllable, the second part, the initial and the final. Bam, you get a syllable. And this creates all the possible sounds in Mandarin. Well, pretty much all of them. And the ones that do not combine are kind of gaps on the chart. And there are a lot of them. So it's really useful to know where the gaps are and where the gaps are not. Because where there are not gaps, that's where you have to learn stuff. But I think what's great for to anyone to listening to know is that, you know, think about this. All the pronunciations of all the different sounds in your language, could it fit on a single chart? Answer is probably not. Because <laughs> one of the great things about Chinese is that there's only 409 unique sounds in Chinese. So, yeah, 409. And if you want to look at, like, at least English, some estimates, there's about 17,000. If you really focus and master this pinyin, then there's only really 409 things to master. And then from there, on, it's just combining all those in the many different ways. Right. And that doesn't include the tones. But on today's podcast, we're not really talking about tones. We're talking about reading. Okay, so point number three I want to make is that dictation is helpful. When I say dictation, it means playing some audio, possibly your teacher just saying something, and you writing out the pinyin that you hear without tones, right? Just getting clear on like, what does an XI sound like? What does an SHI sound like? And only when you go through a dictation exercise like this, do you really see where you're mishearing stuff. You know, I found that so important, John, so useful. Because if you don't know your pinyin well enough, when it comes down the line, even if you can write all the characters, right, it's being able to actually type them and actually be able to use them to communicate. It's really, really important. And that, Jared, is point number four. If you've really learned your pinyin, and I'm talking about aside from tones, before characters, if you've really learned your pinyin, then when you start to learn characters, typing becomes 
a really useful tool that helps reinforce the pinyin because nowadays most of us use pinyin to type characters. You got to know the pinyin well. Then when you start to type, if you think you know the pinyin for a character, but you actually don't, the typing is going to reveal that. And I mentioned earlier how there's some older people in China who don't know pinyin. And you think, well, what do they do? Well, there's other ways to input characters on computers and stuff. We won't really cover that. There's things called bihua, which, you know, it goes with a stroke order of characters. You can put those in. And there's also, you can just like write characters in, right? That's the other thing. But that's the core of it, guys, is that you really got to learn this pinyin if you really want to be able to start communicating effectively in Chinese. It's kind of like the, I guess, the base behind the characters, right? Let me sum up these four points. I hope that I made a case for learning it really well. So that's point number one. You got to learn pinyin really well. Point number two is you need to know what syllables don't exist. And a pinyin chart helps with that. Point number three is that if you're a beginner, doing some dictation with pinyin only, no tones, no characters, will really help point out your mistakes, you know, the areas you're not really getting. And point number four, when you're starting to transition into characters, definitely do some typing of pinyin, character recognition input using pinyin. That is a good bridge. Okay, so there's a lot more we could say about pinyin, but we're focusing on reading, which is a kind of input, not output. So let's go straight to characters. There are a few things that you need to know before you get into it to maximize your efforts. And the first thing is a little bit repetitive, but it's worth saying. First thing about characters is know your pinyin first. <laughs> Some people start characters and they're like, ah, oh, pinyin, whatever. I'll learn that later. Like characters, that's the real Chinese. And yeah, characters is the real Chinese, but um, you need to learn pinyin. Just a quick reminder, writing is a technology. The spoken language is primal in all languages. Learn that first, then learn characters. Yeah, you know, that, John, that's really important, I think, for people to remember that, you know, writing and reading took human civilizations quite a time to develop those. It's not something that's natural and intuitive per se. That's why people, I guess you can say, could be illiterate, but, you know, pretty much anyone can speak. Okay, so we know that you need to learn characters. So how about something that's actually related to that? My point number two for characters is that you really need to understand the structure of characters. Mm. So you might be tempted to think of characters as just a bunch of strokes, a bunch of lines. You just got to learn how they're put together and just memorize them all. And actually, that approach is not even possible if you want to learn the thousands of characters that it takes to become fully literate. You really need to understand the underlying structure of Chinese characters. This is something that we can't really cover very well in this podcast. We just want to emphasize that it's important. A few other little notes. One is try to avoid using the word radical. It's an outdated concept. Components, specifically functional components, are the more modern way to talk about it. And if the resource you're using is using these modern terms, that's a good sign. And it's not like overly traditional and potentially not fun at all. But the other thing you need to know related to structure is that characters, the different components, they sometimes have meaning and they sometimes have sound components. Mm -hmm. So you just need to learn about this. And John, I think just approaching characters in general, I think it's very helpful to learn how they're written and do some writing. Understanding the stroke order and the process and understanding these different components and being able to write some characters definitely has its benefits. It can help you start to see some of these patterns and the components in the characters. Right. So there are these different character components. 
And one of the things that you need to learn is how they fit together in these patterns, these molds. Because there aren't that many of these structural patterns for how characters come together, you know, the different components. You know, there's like the left side and the right side, or the top and the bottom, or the thing on the outside and the thing in the middle. Like, there aren't that many patterns. They're not random. And as you're learning the components, you learn these patterns, it really all starts to gel. And by practicing a little bit, you know, by hand, writing them, it really helps your brain get a better handle on how they fit together, you know, the symmetry, the balance. And that actually does carry over into helping you read better. Absolutely. So that's the case that John and I are making for learning to write. That's not saying, hey, you know, don't ever write. It's when, you know, we're sitting down and we're spending, you know, hours writing, filling books full of characters that we're copying over and over again. That method is a very traditional one that's used in elementary schools for L1 learners, so native Chinese kids. And that's how a lot of Chinese people, that's just how they learn to write characters. And that's what it takes if you want to learn fluently. But we're more focusing on tying some of this together. That's why we're talking about learning pinyin, so you can learn how to type and understanding that pronunciation aspect, and then that obviously leads into characters. Right. And so characters have a structure. You need to learn that. So I think that's enough on that. But let's move on to point number three about characters, which is you're going to need some resources. And uh, we just wanted to give a shout out to some really good resources for learning characters. So one of them is our friend Ola at Hacking Chinese. He's written lots of great articles on learning characters. You should definitely check out what he's written. It's very useful. Hopefully someday we'll have him on this show. Olaf, you got to reply to my emails, man. Come on. <laughs> okay. So uh, aside from that, I know quite a few people who have used the Yo-Yo Chinese characters course. It's a video course. They found it really helpful. I myself am using the Outlier Chinese Dictionary for Pleco. Also super useful, like when you want to do a deep dive on character components and how they work together. Like It's helpful for advanced learners, and it's also helpful for beginners. There are lots of great resources out there, and learning characters is a long-term thing, so you got to you know, load up on these resources. And also got to give a shout-out to Mandarin Blueprint. They have a really great program using mnemonics and the Heisek method to help you learn characters. Yep, and then, of course, Scritter. There's another like free open-source software project called Hansecraft, and that one does a great character breakdown. They have an online version as well as an app version. Definitely worth a look as well. One last reminder, we've said this before on other shows, but it's worth repeating. If you're serious about Chinese characters and you're not just like a, you know, a tourist, just slightly curious, do not use Chinesey <laughs> by Shaolin. Like Chinesey is not a long-term method for learning characters. Use one of these other ones that we mentioned. It's great for a book to have on your coffee table, but for serious learners, there's better resources. All right. So characters, point number four. This is the last one. I just want to mention that there are different types of learners, and this applies to learning characters as well. So like Jared was saying, it's good to do some writing. I know people that like writing. Mm -hmm. So like, don't think that writing characters is bad if you like it. If you like it, do it. Uh, what we're trying to say is if you don't like it, don't let it kill your love of the language. Don't think that you have to write every character a million times or you can't learn because that's not the case. And I've seen very different approaches for learners when it comes to characters. I've seen people that just go all in. They get all the resources, and every time they encounter a new character, it's just like, blah, candy, and they just can't stop. Whereas other people are like, oh, got to learn these 10 characters really well. Better spend a month on them. There are different approaches. Definitely. 
for the average learner, for most people, I would suggest not making that your focus. But definitely reading is a key aspect. And that's what this podcast is all about, at least the first one. Yeah. So no matter how you feel about characters, if you're going to read Chinese, you got to learn a few characters. Okay. So let me just sum up real quick. Characters, the four points we wanted to make is one, don't start until you know your opinion well. Two, learn the structure of characters. Three, have some good resources, which do not include Chinese. And four, remember that approaches vary from learner to learner. So you got to find something that works for you. Excellent points, John. And now vocabulary. I mean, characters, I know that some characters alone can be words, but also moving into vocabulary, which may be combinations of characters. Okay, so some people might think like, okay, I need to learn opinion and then characters and then vocabulary because all words are made from characters. Well, no, not really. I remember spoken language comes first. So it's not like you need characters to have words in Chinese. That's not the case. So we just take a practical approach. Pretty much every textbook, most courses do the same thing. So when you're learning pinyin, it's not like you avoid learning ni hao because you haven't learned characters. You're going to learn ni hao in pinyin. You're going to learn basic words in pinyin, and that's fine. Point number two is you need to find ways to practice and reinforce those. So this usually comes before characters as well. So, you know, you're practicing greetings. You're just practicing introducing yourself. You're learning words even if you don't know the characters yet. And it's very normal to learn words, you know, in pinyin first and then not match up the characters until later. Don't worry about that. That's fine. And yeah, you're right, John, because that's exactly what native speakers do. They first learn the sounds, they learn oral language, and then they learn to read. And I liked how Terry Waltz said once when she was on this podcast, she says, they learn to match a squiggle with a sound. Right. So, I mean, you're not going to go wrong by mimicking native speakers. Uh, you can't mimic them totally, but it's definitely not a mistake to learn to speak, to understand by listening first, and then match up characters later. That's a totally natural way to do it. The only thing I have to say about that is don't wait like really, really long. Like, Don't get upper intermediate quite fluent in speaking and listening with no characters because that can be quite a slog if you have to go back and match like your thousands of words you know with their characters. It's better to do it in around the elementary range, like the very latest low intermediate, because it doesn't feel like too much work. So how would people know that? How would someone say, I feel like me, I'm a little intermediate, I feel I'm ready now to start tackling characters? You know, what, what are some indicators of that? Well, for most people, the indicator is the textbook tells you it's time to learn these characters. <laughs> um, and you, you'll notice that textbooks vary a little bit. Some textbooks jump right into characters in the first chapter. But I think it's becoming more and more common for modern textbooks to like wait at least a couple chapters, maybe even half of the first semester before jumping into characters. And to be clear, that is not long enough to really master pinyin or to master tones. But for most like school-based courses, they don't have the time to wait for characters. They feel like if they're not teaching you characters in the first semester, that then they're failing somehow. So it's fine. Somewhere around the, the elementary range, like you're kind of getting a handle of basic conversation. You, you got the very basic building blocks of fluency. It's fine to start adding characters at that elementary stage. Okay, so vocabulary point number three is when you're learning vocabulary, you need to learn the pinyin for the words and you need to learn the tones. I just know so many people that they learn the vocabulary without any tones. And they're just like, wow, that's, 
if I speak fast enough, it doesn't matter, you know. False, <laughs> false people. And Jared, if you don't have a meme out there about that, then you need a meme about this, this myth that Chinese people speak really fast and they don't really use the tones. No, 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 no. You know, John, I remember one of the early articles I had read on your blog, Sinospice, it actually discussed this. And I think if you recall, what you did is you recorded native speakers and you were able to have something that tracked their intonation. And you found that maybe there were times like they didn't exactly fully emphasize the tone, but it was like on the key points and the key syllables that they're emphasizing. It's like making sure you're hitting the tones on the specific syllables that are important in the sentence. Yeah, it's true that native speakers do certain things with tones, but as a beginner, you just can't do that. It's just one of these cases of you need to learn to walk before you can run. And running might look easier somehow, but it is not. True, true. The whole point of point number three is that when you're learning vocabulary, learn the tones. One of the reasons this is really helpful is when you start matching characters to the words you already know, you get this fortunate byproduct. You're kind of matching tones to characters as well, because a lot of characters are pretty consistently the same tone, or you know they have like maybe two tones. But if you learn the tones well, when you learn the vocabulary, it really helps you. And if you don't, you're going to wish you did later down the road. Makes total sense. All right. So vocabulary, point number four. This is the last one. This is just a little tip that I found useful, and I know other learners have done it, which is when you're learning vocabulary, I find it really useful to get into like literal translations of the words. Other people find it useful to do literal translations of sentences to kind of help get a feel for Chinese grammar, you know, the word order and stuff, but also literal translations of words. So like if you look at the word ni hao, it literally means you good. Mm -hmm. Or if you look at refrigerator, it literally means ice box. Yeah. If you look at telephone, it's literally electric speech. And kangaroo is the bag rat. Oh, yeah. I just find that learning things like this, it helps you match it to characters, and it's just kind of fun, and a lot of times it makes the word more memorable. I don't know, Jared, do you feel like you remember kangaroo forever now because of bag rat? Oh, yeah, totally. In fact, we're going to make a t-shirt with some of these animals that are just kind of funny in that respect. Don't feel like learning words like this, literal translations, character for character, is somehow disrespectful or unprofessional or whatever. A lot of times it helps the words stick, and because you're doing it character by character in most cases... You're helping to match the parts of the word to the characters that are used to written it. So, like, this is actually really helpful. You know, that's something that really helped me when I was learning Chinese is, you know, directly translating the good. You know, it's like, you with me go, right? And saying things like that, it, it just helps me to understand, oh, okay, that's a little bit how the grammar works. Because at the early stages, you are translating in your head anyway. Obviously, once you move up in levels, you want to try to get past that. And extensive reading is an excellent way to kind of break the habit. But you are doing that. And so this is something that can also help you to just grasp the grammar in a better way. Yeah, so it works at the grammar level for words, and it also works at the vocabulary level. And I, I should mention that I know plenty of people who don't really do this, and then they start doing it. And only when they start doing it do they realize why this word is written using these two characters. And it totally makes sense. And it's like an epiphany. I think it's one of the joys of learning Chinese. I like to see how words break down into like ideas. It's like part of the collective consciousness of the native speakers of the language. You know, it's fun. All right. So, John, so you covered these points. So maybe you could go over those again. Okay. So vocabulary number one is focus on the practical words first in pinyin before characters. Number two, 
Find ways to practice and reinforce the language you're learning, and eventually you're going to match those up with characters, but not in the beginning. Point number three, when you're learning new vocabulary, learn the pinyin and the tones, eventually the characters as well, but not in the very beginning. And point number four, the literal translation things for words. It can make the words memorable. It can really help. So I recommend it. And guys, just a reminder, you know, John, he works with learners at all stages, and he's worked literally with hundreds of learners. If you really want to get into characters and learn to reading, this is the great way to start. And we are going to cover more about this in the next few podcasts. In the meantime, it's now time for a word from our sponsor. And today, our sponsor is... The Chinese Pronunciation Wiki. Oh, yeah. So this is a product of Allset Learning, my other company. And uh, you might know the Chinese Grammar Wiki, but there's also a Chinese Pronunciation Wiki. Wow, John, what's in that? How could it help my Chinese? Well, if you're still working on pinyin, we've got one of those pinyin charts online with audio. So you can identify those holes. Make sure you really know pinyin. <gasps> with audio? You mean like I could click on one of the words and it would pronounce it for me? That is correct. Wow, amazing. We also have plenty of info about tones, everything related to pronunciation. So it goes from beginner all the way to intermediate and beyond. So that's a free resource online. Check it out. And John, can I find all 409 pronunciations of Chinese on that website? You can. Wow. And where can I find this amazing resource to help me learn Chinese? So the easiest way is to just go to allsetlearning.com and there's a resources section at the top and just go to Chinese Pronunciation Wiki. That's amazing, John. I think I'm going to go check it out right now. You do that, buddy. All right, now it's time for rants and raves. John, what do you have for us today? Do you have a rant or do you have a rave? I have a very simple rave. It is for a blogger known as Ola Linga. So not Ali Linge, but Ola Linga. He's probably, you know, too polite to stress that over and over himself. So I'll help him spread the word. Maybe in return, he will come on our show. All right, but anyway, what I wanted to say about Ola is that he's written so many articles and so many articles I've seen. I'm like, yeah, that's a good article. I, I should have written that article. Like, this man is a machine. He just pumps out so many articles full of good advice. And it's all just like totally in line with modern research on uh, language learning. Very good guy to be reading if you're not reading him already, hackingchinese.com. And he is a big proponent of Manner Companion and graded readers in general. All right, so what do you got, Jared? Okay, I have a rant rave. What does that mean? So right now, <laughs> when we're recording this, we are right in the middle of the Jongchoujie. That is the Mid-Autumn Festival. One of the traditional things to give people on the Mid-Autumn Festival are mooncakes. Yeah, being. John, I, first I got to ask you, are you for or against mooncakes? I totally love them as long as they're made of non-traditional ingredients such as ice cream <laughs> or, or possibly uh, meat. Uh, I'm not a big meat eater, but those are better than, than all of the traditional ones, which I'm sorry, I don't like. I'm not Chinese. So if any of you have been around China or had Chinese colleagues around this time of year, you may find mooncakes falling into your life. Literally, you know, companies may give them to their employees and clients give them to clients. I've been times where I've been inundated with mooncakes and these things can be great or terrible. It's usually either or. The traditional ones, like someone have like the meat in it. How about those salty egg yolk ones? Egg yolk. Oh. Or lotus seed. <laughs> oh, yeah, yeah. And, you know, you have some that are sweet. And in China, what is Haagen-Dazs, they have their ice cream ones, right? Oh, yeah. I even remember reading, John, once that there were some gold ones 
think those are ones, you know, people are giving to government officials for favors, but there's a lot of things out there for mooncakes. And so there are some good ones. There are some that I guess could be classified as <clears throat> traditional and uh, could be maybe a little bit difficult. But, you know, these things are usually really dense. I think one of those traditional ones, like those egg yolk ones, I've heard that it was like 800 calories or something for like one mooncake. <laughs> could be really packed with some stuff. I got to say, John, I had one. My wife, Heather, she used to write for an expat magazine there in Shanghai. And she got to go with this cooking demonstration. And the guy made some mooncakes. It was with pineapple and cherry in it. And I'm telling you, dude, it was amazing. It was so good. Pineapple, cherry, definitely not traditional. All right. I think we have an interview coming up as usual. I just like to mention, though, that today we mentioned a lot of different things related to pinyin, characters, vocabulary. And we're going to have a lot of links in the show notes. This is a show where it's especially useful to visit the You Can Learn Chinese dot com page and check out the links in the show notes all right let's kick over to this interview with scott young all right oh, geez. Uh, well my name is scott young and i have a blog that i've been writing for almost 15 years now that centers around learning scott hails from vancouver canada and is what you would call an ultra learner which comes from the book he wrote called ultra learning and so a lot of the Things that I'm kind of known for, I guess, now is taking on these learning projects, learning languages, but also things like computer science, art, quantum mechanics, all sorts of things. Scott is the real deal. Something you'll notice quickly is that he puts 100% into whatever he does. So, is it possible to learn a language in just three months? Listen, then you decide. Stay with us. Why did you start learning Chinese? So I started learning Chinese as part of a bigger project that I did with a friend. This was about seven years ago. We did this project we called The Year Without English. And the idea was that we were going to travel around the world and we were going to try to learn the languages of the countries we went to with the method of when we got off the plane, we were going to, to the largest extent possible, not speak English either to each other or to anyone that we would meet. And so we went to Spain to learn Spanish, Brazil to learn Portuguese, China to learn Mandarin Chinese, and then finally Korea to learn Korean. Wow. I had had this experience of going on exchange to France when I had been in university. I did a year abroad and I had been really keen to learn French at the time. And I felt like I struggled. And I felt like the reason that I struggled was because I was doing English classes and all my friends were other exchange students who also spoke English. And so it was weird. I was in France, but I felt like I was inside this English bubble. Mm. When you go to another country, it's not automatic that you're just going to be in this immersive environment. In fact, if you're an adult and you're not like doing some kind of homestay, it's overwhelmingly likely that that's going to be the case. And the amount of people I know who have lived in China for decades, actually decades, and they can barely utter a sentence in Chinese is just evidence of how strong this bubble can be. This was kind of a thought experiment of could you with minimal prep go to a country and attempt this. And I will definitely say, just sort of like spoiler alert, that this is easier to do with the European languages than the Asian languages. But I think that people would be surprised at how low your level can be and still pull this off. For China, for instance, that was the one that I'd done the most prior prep for. I did about 100 hours before we went there. So tell me about that prep. It was kind of haphazard. We did Pimsleur. That was the thing that we had kind of settled on as like how we were mm -hmm. going to get the very basics before we went there. And after Pimsleur, 
I had just found these flashcards. And it was just one of those kind of like, oh, I'm just doing some flashcards. But I think this idea of going to a country and trying to, as much as possible, only speak the language that you're trying to learn is severely underused. Well, why do you think that is? This is hard. <laughs> I mean, yeah, it is hard. I, and I think I think a lot of people have some social anxiety about it. This is not necessarily the case, but I've definitely seen like, you know, the people who want to go to China are maybe a little bit more introverted, a little bit more studious type. That's they find maybe some cultural affinity there and that's why they're interested in it, versus, you know, the person who wants to go to the all night raves at Ibiza or something like that. It's going to be a little bit of a different personality. <laughs> and I think yeah. the cultures are different too. I think it's easier to be that kind of extroverted person in Latin countries than in China in some ways. So socializing creates a little bit more friction. And I yeah. think overcoming that fear of seeming incompetent or that fear of being isolated from people can be challenging. So what was that experience like? You touched down in China. I, where did you fly into? Yeah. Shanghai, Beijing? Kunming. Oh, Kunming. So you're down there on the south end of China near the Vietnam border. Yeah. You touch down yeah. off the plane. Great city, by the way. If anyone's thinking about like where they should go, I highly recommend Kunming. And so what was that like? What happened? Yeah. What did you do? I'll first contrast it with the experience in Spain, because this is, of course, like not, okay, we're coming from North America and just landing in China. This was already leg number three. So we'd already been like oh. six months into a trip and done this two more times. So we'd been in Spain for three months. We'd been in Brazil. Now we were going to China. And so I'll contrast Spain. So Spain, this sort of no English rule was like near perfection. Wow. I cannot say that we were that consistent in Asia. Like there was definitely like, okay, no, no, this isn't working. Like we actually have to speak in English. Like for instance, <laughs> the very first moment we had gotten this, it was like Airbnb wasn't super popular in China then. And we were trying to find accommodations for three months. And mm -hmm. so we used this Chinese version of an Airbnb website and I had like written it in kind of my broken Chinese and we had to like go through a Chinese intermediary because it was through like Alipay and they didn't have PayPal. I was like, it was a big mess, but yeah, yeah, it yeah. was like it not intended for Westerners really. And so we get there and we had a hotel booked for the night because we were getting in in the evening. And then it was like, okay, in the morning, I'm like using the reception phone in the hotel to try to have a phone call with this woman that we're renting <laughs> the apartment from to like, okay, we need to go to our place. And I say something to her and it's just kind of garbled and sort of gibberish. And we get there, but there must have been some wires crossed because she wasn't there. And so we're like outside of this building. And now I'm like trying to talk to like the like security people. And this is also in Kunming, China, like there's not a lot of like just background yeah. walking around the street for English fluency. So yeah. my friend that he was, you know, in some ways less sort of stringent about the rule than I was in difficult scenarios. He was like going up to people on the street being kind of like, do you speak in English? And like people just kind of like laughing at him a little bit. Like, I'm like, oh yeah, you're <laughs> screwed, buddy. Like there's nothing you can do. And I was talking to the security guy there and trying to like, you know, sputter out the few words that I know, like, can you call this person and like, tell them to come here and this kind of thing. And the person who was on the other end was kind of like realizing what the situation was. So they sent someone who did speak some English and they got us into the apartment and oh, like, wow. you know, helped us with those first little tasks of like registering with the police station. Yeah. And then after 
it's pretty consistent. So like we're getting some tutors, we're speaking in Chinese, we're getting some progress there. And definitely the first month was a bit bumpy, but you know, by the end, we actually have like a little social circle. We have some people we go to, we have our daily routines and the whole thing transpired over a little over three months. And so this is a considerably shorter period of time than I think a lot of people would imagine is getting to that level for Chinese. What were some breakthrough moments that you had with using Chinese? There was this little noodle place that I went to pretty much like clockwork every single day for lunch. And there was this shopkeeper and his wife, and they had kind of come in from sort of the rural areas of China to open this little restaurant. A lot of people, then they're going to China, maybe they're studying through a class or they're going to university. So they're kind of with this already sort of segregated set of Chinese society that's, you know, more educated. They speak really standard Mandarin, like no accent or, or things like this. But that's not like 97% of people in Chinese society either. So this was sort of like, I was remember having like conversations with this guy, you know, just a little chit chat every day over the few months. And that was very interesting for me to kind of have that sort of experience. And I remember near to the end of the trip being at a, this was at a different restaurant and just sitting at the table by myself. And there was two Chinese people who were sitting just kind of at the other table. And somehow we just kind of got to talking they're just like, oh, come here and like share food with me. And we were eating with them. And we hung out a couple times after that and stuff too. And what was sort of interesting for me on in that instance was that neither of them spoke any English. And it was kind of like, oh, we're like hanging out and doing stuff. And, you know, a lot of the other situations where I had kind of navigated into it was, you know, they understand that I'm trying to learn Chinese, but they understand some English. And like, that was kind of the background context, like I, you know, coming friends with people that I met through my tutor or this kind of thing. Whereas this was sort of like really just independently random strangers that were meeting at a restaurant. And that was happening probably near to the end of the trip, but it could have happened earlier. Well, that's a fantastic experience. So like, what were you doing to actually have conversation throughout the day and really trying to practice your Chinese? Because I mean, there's only so many times you can go buy fruit, you know, and eat lunch, right? Yeah, well, you need to make friends. Like, I don't think it works just going to the store or going to the restaurant. Like, unless again, like this place, like I'm going to this noodle shop every single day. So the guy kind of gets to know me a little bit. But I don't think just doing errands really counts or like getting a taxi because you quickly exhaust that kind of vocabulary and then it's sort of okay like you can get a little bit better at giving directions or ordering things but even you get to a level of comfort like most of the time when I'm going to the shop in Canada I'm not having like really that much dialogue with the teller or something like this is a pretty routine yeah. tra transaction okay yeah all right thanks all right and then you know a couple things I'll, I'll say so first of all being in Kunming was helpful in some ways because it was not that many tourists outside of China came there. Yeah. And so it's very few Westerners. We weren't living in like, there's a kind of like core downtown sort of area where the university is. And that is like where there's like the one Western cafe where like, like the 10 mm -hmm. Western people who live in Kunming, they all live there. <laughs> but one thing I will say is that like the making friends is really important. And so our strategy in Asian countries was a little different than what we did in Western countries. So Spain, I think, is pretty easy to make friends if you just put yourself in social situations. But in Asia, it's a lot harder. You know, they, there's not as much of a nightlife culture. And even when there is, it's kind of 
weird and not universal. Like people like going to restaurants with their friends and like you can't really just, especially with bad Chinese, just like go up to people's table and be like, hey, do you want to be my friend? Like that's that's odd. Uh, I, I did it the yeah. one time, but that yeah. wasn't, that was kind of also a, like a weird coincidence or, you know, they started talking to me or something. Like it wasn't like a typical scenario. And uh, so what we did, our strategy was we got multiple tutors in-person tutors and we were really key on like the in-person tutoring although we can Mm -hmm. use like italki and things like that but the in-person tutoring was really helpful because basically the first time we're meeting them we say to them okay look this is what our project is we're trying to do this where we're speaking in chinese and we would like to make friends and so you know if you know people or you know like you can introduce us that would be great and sometimes it's a bit of a dud like one person that we met they were also not really from there they were just studying there and they introduced us to some friends kind of later in the thing but it wasn't like they were really integrated in the social web Mm -hmm. but one of the tutors that i had she was working at a bookstore kind of cafe as well. And she had a bunch of other sort of Western friends who were also learning Chinese. And so she kind of introduced me to them. And then I went with them to kind of like a house party or two and met some Chinese people through that. And I would go to the bookstore to study. And so I would get to know the other people that worked at the bookstore. And so I think you do need to have a strategy to make those friends, especially with this handicap of like, I'm not speaking the language I'm comfortable with. So when I meet people, it's going to be kind of, oh, this is this guy who's trying to speak only in Chinese, which is kind of weird. Mm -hmm. But it actually worked. And then you can start having these conversations or get tagged along for social situations and stuff. And so I didn't actually find it that bad to make friends in China. But I do think it doesn't happen automatically. So it's very easy to just go to China. And then like your no English rule could just be I go to the grocery store and I don't hang out with anyone and I just study at home. And like, that wasn't what it was like for me. So I don't want to say that that's what I'm recommending. Rather, it's you know, you have to be pretty strategic. And I think as well, your level of prior Chinese, you should take into account like how comfortable you feel doing that. Like if you feel like you're a really introverted person who would have a lot of difficulty like asking that of a tutor or showing up to a party where you're trying to speak in Chinese, if that feels really, really uncomfortable for you, then yeah, maybe you do want to maybe get to like 200, 300 hours before you go to China. It brings up something that's important because, you know, John, I call John a high functioning introvert. But he says that when he first started learning Chinese, he he made those conscious decisions to kind of step outside of yourself and try to talk to people. Yeah, I definitely think that you need to have that kind of, I'm going to go out and communicate. And there are different ways you can do that. I know that like language exchanges also can be functional if you actually take advantage of them and do them 50-50. Because I think there is sometimes that challenge of like, how do I make myself someone that people would want to be friends with when uh, my level of communication skills is still quite low? And that was a fear that I had going into it that like, oh man, this might just be a disaster. And I would say that the fear, it wasn't as realized as I thought, like even in Spain, when my Spanish was terrible, there was something kind of, I don't know, like mildly charming about these two guys doing this weird project and so when we met people they found it kind of fun or funny and like (laughs) but then after like three months or something when you actually are regularly interacting with people in Chinese even if it's not like quote-unquote good Chinese it's still really satisfying and you know you just get all these opportunities to practice and improve what Things did you learn by going through this process of learning the language in this way that you think is maybe applicable to people who might be under more, I guess you'd say, normal circumstances? You know, they might be learning their own home country or they're using just other methods, other books or resources to learn. 
I think you need to have like real organic communication situations. And one thing I've observed is that when you are in the country where that is the language spoken in the country, you can get away with a much lower level of ability and people aren't kind of like, well, why aren't you speaking in English? But even in places where people have fairly high English levels, you can kind of get away with speaking the language poorly just because in the background habits of these people's lives, they're always speaking that language. So it's just kind of like, okay, yeah, they're not doing it very well, but this is normal. Whereas I've definitely encountered more resistance to doing this kind of like spontaneously coming up to people and speaking Chinese in North America, just because it just really defies their expectation of what this interaction is going to be about. And so sometimes people are kind of like, wait, what? Like, you know, there's a little bit of, uh, mm, okay, like, even if the person can understand me, it comes as a little bit more jarring shock to their, their expectations. And so I think if you are in a non-Chinese speaking country, finding things like meetups or finding language exchange partners or finding those kind of social connections where they understand why you're trying to do this, and they're willing to help you is so valuable. And I think if you lay that groundwork and you're really assertive about trying to do things this way, you can make it happen. And so I've had a Chinese meetup that I've gone to. I mean, since the coronavirus thing, it's been canceled. But basically every week I would go to this Chinese meetup and it was because the context of the meetup was learning Chinese, speaking Chinese. You know, I was able to have lots of conversations with people, but I also Mm. witnessed people going to the meetup and not speaking Chinese or really having like a lot of reluctance to speak in Chinese. And even people who they already have some kind of heritage language skills, so their understanding's not bad. And so they're following the conversation, but they're replying in English. And, and so I find it very interesting just that how much it takes that initiative and in being proactive to, okay, this is how I'm going to create my environment and it's just going to be like this. And, you know, you do have to get people to cooperate, but I find a lot of people, they're sort of, these wilting flowers that like, as soon as there's a little pushback to them speaking Chinese, okay, immediately I'm going to go to English. I'm not even going to try to persevere at all. Yeah, That's what creates the bubble. That's what creates the environment where it's like, oh, it's so hard to practice Chinese or people won't speak to me in Chinese or as soon as I speak in Chinese, they'll switch to English. It's like, well, did you try persisting for another sentence? Even just telling people you have a project to only speak in Chinese, I think works a lot. That was like our key in this whole trip is learn that phrase the first day of each of these uh, countries so that when people are like, what are you doing? You would say, oh, I have a project to not speak English to learn, you know, your language. And when you just repeat that to people, it was suddenly like, oh, okay. <laughs> like they, they were just trying to help when they're speaking English. You know, I speak English. Why are you making this so hard for yourself? But if you tell people that they were suddenly really supportive because they're kind of like, oh yeah, that's good. You should try to learn. Well, Scott, I want to hear about your experience on learning characters, too, because I know you included that in what you were doing. It sounds like you're mainly focusing on oral communication, right? Definitely. Like, what about characters and how did that play into learning Chinese and how did that impact your communication at all? So going into China, I had heard from a number of people who were good language learners to go the kind of spoken first approach. And so that was sort of in the background of my mind, like, you know, one of my friends, Benny Lewis, who I don't think he's 
always as popular and, and for his Chinese learning experiments, but I, I know him quite well. And I know he speaks a lot of European language as well. And so when he went there, he had focused only on spoken Chinese. And I know the great linguist Victor Marr, who's a real good Sinologist, and he's also very much the, you should become basically fluent in Chinese before you try to learn characters, which isn't the university curriculum approach, but this was sort of jumbling around in my head when I went there. And so I had this kind of feeling like, mm, should I learn the characters or not? And I actually went the other way. I decided to learn characters and I found it very helpful for my spoken communication even though that wasn't really my goal. Like my goal while I was in China wasn't really to work on reading comprehension. I didn't mention this before, but at the end of my stay in China, I did do the, and I passed the HSK4 exam. So it can kind of give people who are learning kind of a sense of how far I went. I'm being very vague. I just kind of forgot. Oh yeah, I did actually do a test at the end of (laughs) of that leg of the trip. You know, I think my spoken level was arguably a little better because the HSK there's no spoken component. It's just a listening, reading, and writing. And so reading and writing were the things that I, I just kind of learned them accidentally. Like I didn't spend any time on them. I was only on spoken for the most part. Uh-huh. However, I was doing all these flashcards. And so I was learning characters kind of through that. But for me, where I found the characters really helpful is that Chinese is like a particularly a homophonous language where there's lots of homophones and lots of like, especially if you're ability to recognize tones is weak, which it, it is for like a really long time, then you've got like so much overlap. So when you're learning new words, they kind of all sound the same. I mean, they don't, but like compared to like Spanish or things like this, or even English, I think Ale Linye, our, our, our friend was telling me that the amount of like valid syllables in English that like form actual words is something like four times larger than Chinese, even including the tones, which you can't hear in the beginning. We just discussed this on the podcast here is that there's roughly, I think it's estimates 15 to 17,000 sounds in English. And in Chinese, there's only 409 unique sounds. There you go. So for Chinese, because of how many homophones there are, I feel like the characters for me, we're really helping make sense of like, what is my mental map of how these words are formed? Because otherwise, I just would find it impossible to remember things. Someone would tell me how to say something. Mm -hmm. It would just be in one ear and out the other. And so for me, the characters were these kind of visual hooks that when someone taught me, and even today, when I learn a new word, my first thing is like, what are the characters? And you're like, oh, it's this from this and this from this. Okay, that makes sense. One thing that I will stress is that learning to recognize the characters is a very, very different mental skill than learning to write the characters handwritten. Oh, yeah. I would say it's about three or three to five times easier to learn them only recognition than to learn them from production. And realistically, handwriting is a kind of a skill you only need in certain niche scenarios. If you cannot have a decent conversation with someone and you have booklets and booklets of you handwriting characters... I just question the sequencing of your learning attempt because to me, you're kind of putting this really, really hard thing before you get to any kind of useful interactions. Now, that being said, I do think knowing how to recognize and knowing how to read is an incredibly valuable skill. And so after I came back from China, when it was like, okay, well, now I'm no longer 
in access to this great immersive environment and I'm only like, you know, once a week I'm going to this Chinese meetup. Now is a good time to do a lot of like the reading and, and doing that kind of stuff. So I actually used Mandarin Companion. That was some of the graded readers. Hey, hey. I really also like Tales and Traditions. There was a few other ones that I used to kind of bridge. And then another bridge that I used really heavily was Text Reader. So I got actual mm-hmm. things that I really was interested in reading. So I think the Santi like those books, I read them, the three body problem. You read that in Chinese? (laughs) Yeah. So I read it in Chinese. That was the first novel I read in Chinese, which is surprising because like everyone's, oh, that's a really hard book. But no, it's not a hard book. The thing is that the science is difficult in the book, but that's totally separate from the language being difficult. I've also read like frog Moyen's is a much, much harder book from a Chinese perspective because it has all these like you know, it's all about like rural China and there's like, all like, wait, wait, what's this? And then I'm looking it up and I'm like, I don't even know what that is in English. And, you know, the farm implements that they use in, in China. Literary devices, archaic stuff, cultural specific things. Yeah. But I did that kind of as a bridge as well, where I was using Pleco where you can just tap on the words and they'll tell you them in English. And so that really helped. And then I would say now I'm at a point where for things that, again, are not too, too literary, I don't usually use a dictionary at all. And you know, one of my main learning resources right now is the the Dao app. It's like a kind of a learning platform. The Dao. He was a big kind of media personality and he kind of made this app that's sort of like a learning platform. And I don't, I don't pay for any of the courses on there, they, but they have free ones that are like 10 minute podcasts that have transcripts. And I will listen to them, but I will also read them. And I find when I'm reading them, I very rarely need to look up words. And if I do look up a word, it's usually something pretty obscure. But I do find with like literary Chinese where like the problem isn't that what they're describing is difficult, but they're using kind of advanced words. I do struggle more. So I do have paper books, but I inch through them slowly. But I feel like that was the progression for me was learning the characters while I was in China as part of this spoken fluency project. And then once I had kind of felt like I had a good grasp of the characters, I moved on to the graded readers. I could have started with the graded readers earlier, but it wasn't my goal when I was there at the time. And then shifted to Pleco with the document reader. And then finally to reading actual just paper books and, you know, just looking up words when I need them. And so, Scott, like how many languages do you speak? So, okay, I'm going to tell you a little funny story before I I tell you, because I remember before that and I did this language learning project, I had this real kind of like fetish about how cool it would be to like speak multiple languages. When you're watching like Jason Bourne or somebody speaking multiple languages, like this was just like, oh, this would be so cool. I no longer feel that way about it. But if you were to say what languages could I have a conversation in to that appropriate level of vagueness, I would say right now it's seven. English, obviously, and then Mandarin, Chinese, Portuguese, Spanish, Korean, although my Korean is definitely the weakest and French, which I learned when I was on that trip. And then mm-hmm. most recently, I learned uh, Macedonian, which is a North, mm-hmm. uh, South Slavic language. And it's uh, my wife is uh, was born in North Macedonia. And I will say this, though, stating a number, it makes the measurement problem kind of wrong, because we were just talking about like, I know people that they only speak English and Chinese, but their Mandarin is like, impeccable. And so the kind of linguistic accomplishment of speaking impeccable Mandarin is harder than what I've done, even though if you're comparing one versus seven, it looks like mine's more impressive. So that also, I think, is why some people get a little bit, you know, up in arms about it. But I think the other thing, too, is just that um, speaking multiple languages, 
also creates this issue because maintaining them is like an enormous amount of work. Well, Scott, having gone through this, having studied a number of languages, what advice would you give to someone who is learning Chinese right now? First of all, try to have some interactions with people earlier than you feel comfortable with. And that's a bit subjective, but I feel like Chinese, it's definitely a hard language. It's definitely hard to get to a point where you feel like you're communicating. But I think that that barrier sometimes pushes people to doing a lot of like, okay, I'm going to do all this at-home study and I'm going to like listen to podcasts and I'm going to do all this kind of stuff, but I'm not really using it to communicate. And they wait and they wait and they wait. And it becomes this kind of barrier because the only way you get good at speaking is by actually speaking and you can get other things to assist in that. Like obviously if you are really an expert reader, it assists with speaking, but it's not the same as actually speaking. And so I do think that pushing people to do that earlier would be something I'd recommend. I would say that for me, definitely learning the characters to recognize, but not to write the characters gave me a lot of mnemonic hooks for remembering words. And so I found it to be much easier to acquire vocabulary once I'd kind of gotten over that hump. So like now if I learn like a completely new technical word, usually isn't surprising to me. Like it's sort of like once you know what the component characters are, you're like, okay, that makes sense. But if you don't have those hooks, I think it could be quite difficult to do. And I think that the attitude that you ought to have is I'm going to go out there and I'm going to speak badly, but it doesn't matter. I know there's an entire camp of people that I don't entirely agree with that have this idea that like, well, any mistake you make in the beginning is going to become this permanent error in your speaking. Mm. And while there is some truth to pronunciation, if you really learn how to pronounce things badly, so I think you should always try to do your best. But I feel like that can often become just this mental hang up that excuses you from using it or excuses you from practicing it. And I feel like the more you can get your hands dirty, get in it, make mistakes, learn from that, the more you can get yourself into that environment where learning can actually progress. Whereas the kind of perfectionistic or kind of like hypersensitive to, well, I don't want to ever say anything wrong, tends to be the approach in my mind that leads to people staving off actually using it. And okay, I'm going to retreat to going through my textbook or listening to my podcast because that's more comfortable for me. Scott, I really appreciate you sharing all these perspectives and your experiences with us. For listeners, I'm going to brag about you for a second. I mean, he is like an ultra learning. In fact, you have your book. It's called Ultra Learning, right? Yeah. And you've done a whole bunch of things about learning. It's not just languages, but, you know, learning things like, you know, quantum mechanics and learning how to, you know, draw. It's quite amazing everything you've done. So where can people find you if they want to know more about you and learn a little more about things that you've been doing? Sure. So you can go to my website, which is at scotthyoung.com. That's S-C-O-T-T-H-Y-O-U-N-G.com. I recently published a book, Ultra Learning, focusing on people who have learned hard skills in kind of unusual ways or in self-directed ways and sort of trying to dissect some of the cognitive science behind how that works and why people are able to make a lot of progress in skills that you might not expect. Well, we'll be sure to put those links in the show notes. And so, Scott, thank you so much for sharing your time and your experience with us. We really appreciate it. Oh, thank you so much for having me. You have been listening to the You Can Learn Chinese podcast. Help us spread the word by sharing this with your friends, classmates, teachers, cousins, sophomore, frisbee thrower, waffle eater, faith builder, nature hiker, ice blocker, whip cracker, cup stacker, and that one guy named Lloyd. You can subscribe on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. And please write us a review so we know how we're doing. 
You can find us on Facebook and at mandarincompanion.com. If you feel like you've got an interesting story to tell about learning Chinese, reach out to us. Apologies to John Cena, who just ran out of time. The You Can Learn Chinese podcast is produced by myself, Jared Turner, and our editor is James Harper. I'd like to thank our guest, Scott Young, and of course, thanks to my co-host, the man, the myth, the legend, John Pazden. See you next time.